All right, so um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Part of it was read earlier during our singing time. Um, It's Paul's most extensive, the Apostle Paul's most extensive passage on the resurrection. Now, before I read it, I want to explain something to you. Why is Paul writing this to the Corinthians? Well, the Corinthians were brand new Christians. They believed in the gospel. They believed that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead to pay for their sins. But they were also Greek, and they had been influenced by Greek philosophy. So here's what they believed. They believed Jesus died bodily. His body died. He rose bodily. But they didn't think they were going to rise bodily once they died. In other words, they believed that when they died, their body would go in the tomb and rot. Their soul would go to heaven or to hell. Okay, If if you believe in Christ, you'll go to heaven. If not, you would go to hell. But there's no future day of resurrection where their bodies would come out of the grave. Now, I think if you were to ask most people today, what do you believe? They would say, I believe we die physically, and then our spirit goes to heaven or hell, and that's it. Do you know that part of the gospel message is, not only did Christ die bodily and rise bodily, but when you die, you will die bodily. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord if you believe in Christ. And then there's a future day of resurrection when your body will come out of the grave, be, you, be re- reunited with your spirit, and you will live in your body in the presence of the Lord. Okay, So the Corinthians had some false teachers and some philosophical ideas mixed into their true belief of the gospel, and they were denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. So That should help you understand what Paul's going to say. So I'm going to step down here, and we're going to read this. And would you please all stand as I read these 20 verses? Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, 
then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And everybody said, Amen. And you may have a seat. Lord, as we explore your word, Holy Spirit, do your work amongst us. I pray, Lord, for those who may be on the edge of exploring the truth of Christianity, that as your gospel is proclaimed, you would do your miraculous work of transformation. And Lord, use what is said today from your word to glorify you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what Paul is doing. He is, first of all, and if he were to put it in a three-point sermon, all three points would begin with the same letter, all right? So here's what he's going to do. He's going to point out the centrality of Christ's resurrection from the dead, and then he's going to point out the certainty that it really happened, right? And then he's going to point out the consequences of denying our bodily resurrection, from the dead. So first of all, let's take a look at the centrality of Christ's resurrection. So here's what he's going to do here. He's going to say this. He's going to say, by way of reminder, you who deny the bodily resurrection of Christians, as way of reminder, let me simply remind you that central to the gospel that you believed in that is, saving your soul that you are standing on, central to that gospel, is the bodily resurrection of Christ. So, in essence, that's what he says in the first two verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, so I preached it to you, I preached about Christ bodily resurrection, and and I preach it, and you received it, which you received, in which you stand. You're standing on it. That's your confidence right now. 
and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let me just remind you that Christ's bodily resurrection is what's saving your soul right now. All right? Central to the gospel that you think is saving your soul is Christ's bodily resurrection. Now, there are a handful of words here that can be troubling um, for theological reasons, and I just want to touch on them. Paul talks about being saved and if you hold fast. So people see the conditionality here. It says that you're being saved. And some of you go, wait a minute. I thought either you're saved or you're not saved. What's this being saved? Doesn't that seem like now he's saying you can lose your salvation? He's really not saying that. But let me, let me untangle some things. The Bible does talk about Three tenses of salvation. Past, present, and future. Okay? So for example, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I've placed my faith in Christ. Guess what? I'm saved. I'm saved. In the same letter, the Corinthians, Paul writes this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were saved. How can we be in the process of being saved? Well, it gets even more complicated because there's a future tense. First Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation... Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Seems like it's a future salvation. Well, how do you fit this all together? Well, all three tenses are true. The first tense is talking about justification. Justification is this. The moment you trust in Christ, your sin is paid for. And his righteousness is given to you and God sees you as perfect. He declares you just. That's called justification. You are justified... In a moment in time. Justification is not a process. It's a point. Right? So, justification. You're saved from the penalty of your sin. But you know what? If you are truly justified, you will continue in your belief. And that's called sanctification. That's the the, the being saved process. You're being saved not from hell, but from the power of sin in your life. Now, it may not feel like it because maybe you had a rough week. Maybe you blew it again. But when you take a look at the big picture of your life from the moment you believed to the end, you're going to see a cleaning up process. You're going to see the Holy Spirit making you more and more like Christ. Okay? But not perfect. And that's what we wait for in the future, our glorification. 
you're yet to be saved from the presence, from, from sin, period. The minute you believe, your sins are forgiven and you are declared just. There's a process of being cleaned up, but then when we get to heaven, you will be fully perfected. Past, present, future. Now, here's what I want you to, to know. These are a package for all who are truly saved. If you're justified, you will be glorified. Okay? If you veer off and you run after some cult or you just stop following the Lord, does that mean you've lost your salvation? You know what it means? You never had it. And Paul is saying, you Corinthians got me nervous. By denying the bodily resurrection of believers, I'm going I'm to straighten you out on this, but if you veer off into that heresy, you never were saved. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying here. Continuing in the faith is the proof, proof of true saving faith, and the guarantee of it. You prove that you're saved by continuing to believe, and you know what? If you're truly saved, you're guaranteed that you will continue to believe. But you go, well, what if, I, I mean, I know somebody who claimed to be a follower of Christ and that it looked like they were saved, but now they've denied the Lord and they're living like the devil. What, what happened there? John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. All right? So, I, now we, we kind of went down a theological rabbit trail there, but we had to explain the text. But get the big picture. The big picture is this Paul's going to confront them on their view, uh, on their wrong view of the resurrection of the body. And his first point is hey, Central to the gospel is Christ's resurrection. That's what you need to stand on. That's what you're being saved by. Don't veer off or it'll show you never got it to begin with. All right? So first we see the centrality of the resurrection. Now let's take a look at the certainty of Christ's resurrection. Okay? Now what he's going to do here is he is going to say, by the way, Christ's resurrection, it really happened. It didn't happen somewhere in heaven or in a myth. It really happened in Jerusalem. And you know how we know it happened? There were, were, there's witnesses that can attest. They saw him dead. They saw him alive. Now, let me give you five witnesses that he points to. The first witness that he points to are the Scriptures themselves. The Old Testament Scriptures. So here, Paul recites the Gospel. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This isn't just some new historical event isolated from the rest of, of the Old Testament Scriptures. This was all prophesied in the Old Testament. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
if you were here Friday night, we had a Good Friday service, and we looked at Isaiah chapter 53. It was written 600 years before the birth of Christ. And that one passage prophesied 11 things about Jesus, who, was, who wasn't even born yet. It prophesied his ministry would be met with unbelief, that he would be viewed as less than ordinary, that he would be despised and rejected, he would be perceived as cursed by God, he would be pierced, crushed, chastised, striped, oppressed, afflicted, and slaughtered. He would die as a substitute. He will be silent before his accusers. His death would involve being in the company of wicked men and a rich man. He will resurrect from the dead. He will justify many, and he will pray for sinners. As Remember, he looked down and prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. So the first witness to the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ is not a person. It's the Old Testament Scriptures, which were already signed, sealed, and closed. Okay? But then he says... Here's some other witnesses. After Jesus rose from the dead, it says in, that he appeared to Cephas. That's, a, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. So he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So here he's saying the apostles were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Now, um, they haven't died yet, but we know that all of them, except for John, are going to go on to die martyrs' deaths for their faith. Strong argument for the resurrection of Christ is this. How do you explain these cowards turning into courageous martyrs? Now again, the argument is not this. The argument is not they died for their faith, therefore whatever they believe must be true, If that's the reasoning, then the 9-11 terrorists who flew their airplanes into the Trade Center buildings, what they believe must be true because they were willing to die for it. No, no, no. That's not the argument. The argument is, how do you explain cowards turning into courageous martyrs? They experienced Christ as dead, and then they saw him alive. All right? The change happened when they saw Christ alive. All right? So, Jesus first of all rose from the dead according to the scriptures. He was seen by Peter and the 12, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now get this. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means died. So did you know that? When Jesus rose from the dead, there was a sighting of him by 500 witnesses at one time. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians 20 years after Christ rose from the dead. But he's he's doing this. He's saying, don't take my word for it. There are still 500, well, maybe 496 people still alive 
that can either refute or confirm what I'm saying. Folks, a myth this huge cannot be slipped into history while there are still witnesses alive to confirm it or refute it. This is a huge verse to confirm the truth of the resurrection of Christ. So, Paul goes on, he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, some of you are like, well, who's this James? How come he gets a special appearance? Is this one of the apostles? No. Though there are, there's lots of Johns and lots of Jameses in the Bible. This is Jesus' brother, James. Now, some of you from a certain background are going to say, Jesus had brothers? Yeah, they're named. Four of them are named. James is the oldest. But here's here's why this is important. And by the way, James goes on to become the leader of the Jerusalem church. He dies for his faith in his brother by stoning. Okay, But here's, here's the amazing thing. During Christ's ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. Right? So, Mark 3, they said to his brothers, he's out of his mind. Now, my brother has said that about me, and it's true at times, but, but they said this about Jesus. Okay? In uh, John 7, 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. But, as you read the book of Acts, we find out that the leader of the Jerusalem church is now James. The author of the book of James is... Hello? James? Matthew. No, James. Okay, That's why they conveniently call it James. Very good. Okay, How, how do we go from unbelieving brother to head of the Jerusalem church... James got a special little visit. And I imagine that's when he got converted. Now, Jesus didn't do this, but if I were Jesus, I would have appeared and said, Hello, James. It's your brother Jesus. Yeah, I'm back. Okay, so James is a, uh, a witness. Okay, then Paul himself is a witness, but he's in a special category. Okay? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Oh, was he premature? Was Paul a premature birth? Well, he's talking about his birth in becoming an apostle. He became an apostle in a different way than the others. See, the others followed Jesus for three and a half years. Paul, nah. uh Paul was a, uh, a Pharisee who hated Christians. And uh, he persecuted Christians. He was responsible for the death of the first Christian, Stephen. All right? But it goes on to say, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that, was, uh, that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. So he's saying, uh, I'm the last one to have seen Christ alive. On the road to Damascus, he's going to kill more Christians. Jesus appears to him alive. So he gets in as an apostle on the back end. He's the last guy. So Paul's saying, point one, the central message of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ. Point two, you can be certain it happened by all these witnesses. Now, point three, and this this gets back to him addressing their unbelief in their resurrection, the consequence of denying the resurrection. So, this is very systematic, tight, syllogistic logic. Follow this. Now, if Christ, if it, if it is proclaimed, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? You can't base your salvation on Christ's death and resurrection if categorically there's no resurrection from the dead. If you've ruled out bodily resurrection, then not even Christ was raised from the dead. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's saying, just let's be consistent. Let's play out your worldview and press it and fill it all in. Okay? So, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Vain means useless. I have spent my life wasting my life, Paul is saying. Because this is all a joke. Oh, and your faith that you're saved? That's a joke too. A bunch of deluded people. Remember, this is he's playing out their, their view. Okay? But it gets even worse. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So we're, we're uh, liars. We're misrepresenting God. Okay, And... If if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You're going to hell. Think it through, Corinthians. You deny bodily resurrection categorically. Christ has not been raised. Christ has not been raised. You're still in your sin. You're going to die and go to hell. Oh, what about... uh, what about your friends who've already died? Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Better get your theology right, Corinthians. All right? 
You can't pick and choose. You can't say, I'll take Christ's bodily resurrection, but not our own. Because you end up nullifying Christ's and your hope that you're even going to be a disembodied spirit going to heaven. No, that's, that's not true. Now, he says this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all you have to look forward to at your death is hell or just nothingness, the stupidest thing you can do is live an upright, self-sacrificing Christian life. What, what are you doing wasting your life sacrificing for anyone? Oh! <gasps> That's not nice. No, it's consistent. It's lo- the, the inspired apostle is giving you permission, if you don't believe in an afterlife, to not waste your life being a, sec- a, a sacrificial person. Okay. Um, let me confirm the apostle Paul by a guy named John Piper. Okay. Piper says, There's a better way than Christianity to maximize your earthly comforts and pleasures. If your goal in life is to maximize the joy and pleasure and comfort and success on this planet, Christianity's not for you. Most definitely not for you. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes on in the same chapter, and he says, If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Some of you are are, are appalled at this. You're appalled at logic. (laughs) You're appalled at at consistency. Let's, you know, either either this Christianity thing is true and it matters, or it's not true and it doesn't matter. Choose. Right? Even the way you live the rest of this afternoon depends on whether this is true or not. Okay? Now, Piper goes on to say something rather interesting. When Paul says, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, that's not what you might think it is. He says this. Now, when he said that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, he did not mean, let's all become gluttons and drunkards. He means, be normal. Be middle class. Just eat and drink and exercise. Okay, what, what, what's he saying? If Christ hasn't raised from the dead, just go on living like the rest of suburbia does. We're going to have a nice meal today, maybe a barbecue. Enjoy your food. Enjoy the cubs and the bears. Enjoy your politics. Enjoy your lawn. Just live for stuff. Don't don't live for you don't even have to go into depravity. Just live consistent with the fact that when you die, that's it. Live like everybody else lives. But notice the assumption here: if Christ has raised from the dead, you shouldn't be living like the rest of suburbia. In other words, if you say I believe it with all my heart, but I'm no different than anybody else, I do live for my lawn and the cubs. 
something's wrong. You should be spending your life in self-sacrifice to bring others into the kingdom. Why? Because that will save me? No. Christ's death and resurrection is what saves you. But when you realize that Christ has risen from the dead, by the way, concluding verse, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's all true. He rose from the dead. Therefore, resurrection of the body is not ruled out categorically. Therefore, you're not in your sins. Therefore, at death, you will not perish in hell or into nothingness. Therefore, you don't have to live a meaningless life of eating and drinking and exercising and just watching sports. You can live a meaningful life giving your life away, risking it, maybe going on the mission field. Or how about this, staying here and going into the mission field called work. Or loving your neighbors, inviting your family over. In other words, living strategically to die daily to spread the gospel. In fact, let me give you the full context of this, uh, of this verse 1 Corinthians 15.32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul is saying, if, if uh, the gospel's not true, if Christ hasn't uh, risen and I'm not going to ra- uh, be raised from the dead, I'm a fool to have fought wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, commentators argue, what does that mean? Maybe he was thrown to wild beasts and gnarled up by some lions and he lived. Others say, no, this is maybe talking about the persecution. The wild beasts are people persecuting him. Whatever it was, we know that Paul lived a life of sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians, he says, five times I received the, the 39 lashes. His entire back was massive scar tissue from the persecution he endured. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. And then he lived the the last days of his life in prison. And Paul is saying, yep, it's all worth it. Because Christ has been raised, I'll be raised, and for eternity I will live in the presence of the Lord so I don't have to pretend like this life is all there is. I can give it away for Christ. And he's saying, would you join me? So, so this Easter, I'm going to call on us not, to, not just to believe in Christ for salvation. Oh, if you haven't done that, you need to trust in Christ for your salvation. But I'm not calling us just to do that. Not just to rejoice in our salvation, which I want you to do. Not just to eat and drink and exercise and take care of your lawn. I'm calling us to not waste our lives living like the rest of the world. Give your life away for the sake of the gospel. Is the Holy Spirit of God resonating with your soul to do that? Talk to him about that. Let's pray. Lord, we sang, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because you live, 
We will live for eternity. Because of that, we don't have to live like the rest of the world. So Lord, speak to us. Show us how to spend our life for you. Not living the way the rest of the world lives, but living in a way that glorifies you and brings as many people with us as possible. Thank you, Jesus, that you died to pay for our sin and rose again. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.